I want to take that second reading from Second Peter, which also, by the way, deals with the transfiguration experience. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1207. Second Peter chapter 1 and beginning at verse 13, which I'd like us uh, to read again. Second Peter chapter 1 and beginning at verse 13 where the Apostle Peter, very much at the end of his life, as we shall see, as he mentions that even in our text, writes, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every, every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard these, this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word now more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn. And the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This morning I want to talk about remembering things that we already know. Remembering things that we already know. Indeed, that's exactly what Peter is doing here in our text, reminding his readers about what they already know, writing first to the original readers in the first century and then by extension for us as well who believe in Christ. In fact, because this is the Word of God, God is still speaking. It's still a living book because the God who speaks through it is alive. It was Mark Ward, uh, editor of Bible Study Magazine, who put it this way. He said, the great majority of the Bible is not written to me, but it's written for me. And so Peter says in verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things, though you already know them. And so what do we know? Well, first off, we know that godliness is our calling. You heard that, haven't you? That God calls us to live a godly life. In fact, to get this understanding of our text itself, we have to understand its broader context. Look at verse 3 if you have your Bible open. Verse, verses, verse 3 and then verses 5 through 7. Peter says, God's divine power has granted to all of us things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. 
And then notice verse 5. And so for this reason, make every effort to add to or supplement your faith with virtue and supplement virtue with knowledge and supplement knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And so Peter says that God, by his divine power, has granted to us all that we need to live godly lives. Sometimes it's like, well, how can I do that? It's so hard. Well, in your own power, it's not only hard, it's impossible. But in the power of the Spirit and the power that God provides, it's absolutely possible in fact, if the Spirit is alive, what did Paul say? And if we are led by the Spirit, we are the children of God. Sometimes people will say things that seem to suggest to me that it's my job to be godly. Not all clergy understand that. But 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 the insinuation is is that this is your your this is your profession, and so you have to be godly. There is never that kind of dichotomy found anywhere in the teaching of Jesus or his apostles. We're all called to it. And you won't when you stand before God say, well, it wasn't my job. It was the priest's job. Uh, you might get the sort of answer that uh, you wouldn't like. Because he's, this applies. In fact, I don't live for God. or I'm not trying to live for God because I'm a priest. I'm trying to live for God because I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so Peter says that God, by his divine power, has granted all of, to all of us all that we need to live godly lives. Indeed, God doesn't just call us to live godly lives. He also gives us what we need in order to do it. Indeed, notice again, verse 3. And his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It was J.I. Packer in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, who wrote, Supernatural living through supernatural empowering is at the heart of New Testament Christianity. It's not an exception, it's meant to be the norm. And so by God, by his power, has granted to us all that we need in order to live godly lives. And godliness, as we know, is our calling. Indeed, notice again, uh, verses 5 through 7. And so Paul says, for this reason, that God calls us to godliness, and he has provided for us what we need, his power to do it. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Not just faith, but virtue along with it. Indeed, it isn't enough just to say we believe, or to say the creed, as we do on Sundays. Because true faith always results in virtuous living. As someone has written commenting on that famous passage from James chapter 2 where James says, faith without works is dead. The writer said, faith without works is dead and therefore faith isn't true faith until we actually act upon it. Or as someone else has pointed out, the English word believe is a combination of two other English words, by and live, 
And so to believe is to live by. And so it's not just mental assent. True faith is expressed and lived and seen. And so Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then Peter, Peter says, and supplement virtue with knowledge. Have faith, have virtue, and have knowledge. Brian McLaren in his book, Generous Orthodoxy, wrote this. He said, I seek to, to develop virtue not just for my own benefit, but so that I can inflict less damage and provide more blessing to those around me. And I seek to better understand Scripture, he says. That's adding knowledge to virtue. I, I seek to better understand Scripture, not just for my own sake, but so that I will be better equipped to serve both God and my neighbor. And Peter says, and, and supplement knowledge with self-control. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control. Someone has written, quote, self-control is like a river that flows freely within the boundaries of its own banks, bringing life and refreshment and a whole host of other benefits. On the other hand, a river that overflows its banks and rages out of control is like a life lacking self-control, where healthy boundaries are violated and what once was a blessing becomes a source of pain and loss and human destruction. So self-control is a good thing. And so Peter says, and supplement knowledge with self-control. And Peter says, and supplement self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness, that is, add to self-control endurance, perseverance. Which is the very opposite of giving up. When I feel like giving up, that's an indication to me, like a red light flashing on my dashboard, that I'm operating in the flesh and not in the spirit. I know that by experience. But... But, but he says, add to self-control steadfastness, that is endurance, perseverance. It was Churchill who famously said, success, I love this, success is never final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And the Spirit can give us courage to persevere. And so Paul says, and supplement self-control with steadfastness. And then Peter says, and supplement steadfastness with godliness. That is, if you like, God-likeness. At which um, some churchgoers balk, well, you know I'm not God. Well, you're called to be like God. Uh, in fact, um, if we're truly children of God, in fact, that's the argument that the apostles make. If you're truly a child of God, be like your father. Jesus did that too. He said that too. Love your enemies. And then at the end he said, and so be complete as your heavenly father is complete. He loves his enemies. He loves his friends. He loves them all. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 30, Paul's talking about this. He says, don't grieve the spirit of God. When the spirit of God is wanting to work in you, don't shut it down. 
Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Paul says. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then the first verse of chapter 5, and therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. <laughs> we like that part. Well, it's just so good to be a child of God. Well, I'm, are you a child of God? Yes, I'm a child of God. Okay, good. So now imitate the Father. And that's our calling. And so we supplement steadfastness with godliness. And then Peter says, and supplement godliness with brotherly affection. That is, heartfelt caring for others. Genuine concern for them. But more than that, Peter says, and supplement brotherly affection with love. And in the Greek, of course, this is agape. And agape love is, is much more than just heartfelt concern. In fact, it's not you may produce a feeling uh, or not because the point is not that you feel it but that you do it and agape is selfless love it's a gracious kind of love it's a, a love that gives and the beauty is in the giving even if it's not reciprocated indeed agape is more than a feeling it's, it's more than just something we do because it makes us feel good if you're doing it because it makes you feel good, well, maybe you're doing it for you. <laughs> Indeed, gape is a love that acts for the benefit of others no matter what, even if it's costly or inconvenient. There is something, here's this person, this person needs it, and I supply, I serve, I do, because I love the way God loves. M. Scott Peck and his famous book. In fact, I, I didn't read it when it first came out. I read the 25-year anniversary edition. You know, when, they're, when they have a, a, an anniversary edition of a book that's been around for a dec two decades and a half, that's a, that's a good book. Well, at least a book that people like to buy. But M. Scott Peck, in his book, The Road Less Traveled, it's a phrase, of course, from Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Less Traveled. He said, everyone in our culture desires to some extent, to be loving. Yet many are not actually loving. I therefore conclude that the desire to love is not the same as love itself. Indeed, love is as love does. Love is an act of the will. Namely, it is both an intention and an action. And the fact that it's re it, it related to the will implies a choice. We don't have to love, Peck says. We choose to love. And no matter how much we may think we are loving, if we are not, in fact, doing love, it is because we have chosen not to love, and therefore we are not actually loving despite our supposed good intentions. And so what we know is that God calls us to godliness. What we also know is that it is the godly who will populate the coming kingdom of Christ. 
In fact, the Apostle Peter says as much in our text. Indeed, notice again uh, verse 11. He says, for in this way, by living a godly life, there will be a, you, there will be richly provided for you, he says, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For in this way, by living a godly life, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It reminds me of it. Max Licato said, whether you live to be nine or ninety, life is short and the kingdom of God lasts forever. Or Shane Claiborne in his book, Irresistible Revolution, he said, in the kingdom, we'll party like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> and there won't be. <laughs> and so it's the godly who will populate Christ's coming kingdom. And we know this. And Peter says that what we know bears repeating. In fact, notice verses 12 through 15. He says, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, those qualities that we just expressed, the faith, virtue, steadfastness, self-control, knowledge, brotherly affection, agape love. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you already know them and are established in the truth that you have. And Peter continues, verse 13, and I think it right, he says, as long as I'm still alive, as long as I'm in this body, you wonder why preachers say things over and over? It's an apostolic tradition. <laughs> Advertisers say things over and over, but for a different reason. Right? I think it right as long as I'm in this body, as long as I'm alive to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body, he's talking about his death, will come soon even as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And you remember Paul or Peter dies in Rome and as tradition has it, um, they were to crucify him. He was a Jew without Roman citizenship and causing a lot of trouble and saying that there's another curios, another Lord that isn't the emperor, which is a, was a seditious act. And so he was sentenced to crucifixion, but he had one request and that was that they crucify him upside down because he didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified in the same posture and position that they had crucified Christ. But he says, I think it right as long as I'm in this body, as long as I'm alive, to stir you up by reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body, that is my death, will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And he continues in verse 15, and so I will make every effort so that after my departing, after my death, you may be able at any time to recall, to remember <laughs> the things that I've told you. And so what we know is that the godly are those who will populate Christ's coming kingdom. And finally, what we also know is that Christ's kingdom is sure to come. Indeed, notice again verses 16 through 19. Peter, who was there, by the way. It's interesting, in the gospel reading, it says after the transfiguration, they didn't talk about it. But they sure talked about it later. 
And after Christ rose and was ascended and he sent them to go and preach the gospel to all nations and so forth, they never stopped talking about it. But notice verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Indeed, the transfiguration event is, was, is not a, a legend they created and passed on to us. The apostles, Peter and James and John, saw it with their own eyes. Who also, upon pain of death, you remember in Acts chapter 4, they were being told, don't preach this anymore. And they said, we can't stop talking about the things that we've seen and heard. Do with, do with us whatever you want to do. You killed the Lord. and we, we saw him alive three days later. He was with us for 40 days. One time he came in and he said, don't be afraid. He said, do you have anything to eat? We had some broiled fish. We gave it to him. He took it and he ate it. And he was coming and going. And he said, what had happened to him will happen to us. Do what you want. We're completely... In fact, the Apostle Paul said that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And oh, that I might be conformed to his death because I have to, be, I have to die before I can rise again. It's insanity. If it weren't true. And the transfiguration event signifies the reality of Christ's coming kingdom. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, at the very last verse of chapter 16, and, 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 and spilling into chapter 17, Jesus said to, to the people there, and his disciples primarily, he said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here right now who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then we read the 17th chapter in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain, probably Mount Hermon, by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And what did it signify? They were seeing the coming of the Son of God as it will happen yet to come, as we're waiting for it even to come in all of its fullness. And so Peter says, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, for when, we were, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, that's a reference to God the Father, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard, we saw it, we heard it. We can't keep silent about the things we've seen and heard. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter saw with his own eyes Christ's coming. And the scriptures, he says, also declares that Christ's kingdom is sure to come. Indeed, notice verses 19 through 21. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It's sort of an interesting statement. I mean, he's basically, he's saying is that the, the scriptures have been saying this all along. And then we got a preview of it on the holy mountain. And in a sense, the promises 
And the teaching of Holy Scripture is in a sense confirmed. Not that it isn't already sure, but in our minds it's sure to, more sure to us because we saw it with our own eyes. And the Scriptures also declare, he says, the kingdom is sure, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, to focus on as a lamp shining in a dark place. You can imagine that. Darkness and there's one oil lamp. A little clay lamp with olive oil in it. And that little flame. And in the darkness, that's the total focus. Focus on the scriptures, he's saying, in, in such a way. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The, the, the dawning of the age to come. He's talking about. That is until the coming of Christ's kingdom and the dawning of the age to come. And Peter continues verse 20. Knowing this first of all, first of all, first priority that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That is to say that no prophetic word recorded in scripture originates with the prophet. So Peter continues, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is to say that the prophet speaks, but it's the Holy Spirit of God who moves and directs the prophet what to say. Which sayings are recorded for us in Holy Scripture? Or as someone has written, the prophet plays the tune, but God is the tune's composer. And so the way that Peter plays the tune is a little bit different than the way John plays the tune. And a little different than the way that Paul plays the tune. And, and Ezekiel plays the tune, but he plays it a little bit differently than Jeremiah. Etc. And if you've ever, let's say, uh, uh, Dvorak's uh, uh, cello concerto, and then you have three cellists that play it, and then you listen, and it's just a little bit different. But Dvorak wrote it. It's his concerto. <laughs> Even though there's a little bit different way, a little, uh, there's difference in the way in which it's executed, but the notes are still played. Eugene Peterson in his book called Working the Angles, he said, a living God speaks a living word and the scriptures are the written representation of that word. Or in our own articles of religion, the Anglican Episcopal Church, article 20 describes the scriptures as God's word written. And that's a thing to be remembered. That the scriptures are not just the words of men, but the words of God. And so here are three things that you already know. But we all need to remember that one, godliness is our calling. And two, that it is the godly who will populate Christ's coming kingdom and Christ's coming kingdom is sure to come. And if we remember these three things, 
It will make all the difference in the way we live our lives. Amen? Amen? <laughs> Remembering what we already know. Let us pray. That's why we rehearse it, Lord. We have to be reminded. And we know it's for our own good. I just pray, Lord, that it wouldn't seem a duty to us because that's not very much of a motivation. Uh, when living for you, Lord, is considered by us a good but onerous obligation. Help us to remember what is gained in it. Help us to remember the joy that comes from walking with you. In fact, we may not be able to wrap our minds around that because maybe we have a history of religion and a history of Christianity where it all is obligation and shaming and, and so on. But help us, Lord, maybe to see it in a different way and if we can't really imagine what it might feel to do it, to just do it by faith. And create a habit of it to prove to ourselves that when Jesus said, you, if you are my disciples, you'll do what I say and you shall know the truth and it will make you free. To really find that to be our own personal experience and to find that his promise is true. Help us to do it, we pray. To remember and to do. For your glory and our soul's health, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.